Sharecropping was the word father used. The slave quarters were gone, and now two dozen or more independent cabins formed a small community. With father's reluctant permission, the Negroes had built a church and a school on the property. Even the adults were going to school, educating themselves right along with their children. Every day, Emily stood before them in the little schoolhouse they had erected two years ago and taught them to read and write. And now, horrible men, driven by hate, were terrorizing plantations, seizing the freedmen, beating some, hanging others, committing sheer butchery for no reason at all except the one that had plagued their little part of the world for so long the need for white people to believe they were superior in every way to Negroes. The hoofbeats grew louder, closer, and Emily fell to the floor, her heart hammering in her chest. Lord God, dear Lord, please protect them, protect us. The freed Negroes were not the only ones who lived in fear of these night riders. Many white Republicans were now picked out by this demented group, the Ku Klux Klan, for punishment, beating, and even murder. But Emily did not fear for her father. He was a sworn Democrat through and through. Still, he was a fine man who had treated his slaves kindly on the plantation. Before the war. Emily collapsed on the floor, brushed her black ringlets of hair from her eyes, and wept. Before the war, she said out loud. Her whole life had made sense before the war. Now the plantation was practically in ruins. Her two brothers were dead, and mother looked frail and old. Father was a fine, good man, but he was weak and afraid. In 1867, Congress had divided the South into military districts and registered only voters who could take a loyalty oath to the United States and swear that they had not aided the Confederacy. These conditions had resulted in many white Southerners, including her father, being disenfranchised. Emily brushed her fists across her face to swipe away the tears. For all those antebellum years, she'd been naive and young. But at twenty, with three years of caring for dying soldiers behind her, and two years as a teacher at the schoolhouse for the former slaves, she was no longer naive, and she no longer felt young. She wanted the freedmen to have all that was due them by the Constitution, their rights. With the new Reconstruction Act passed in 1867, black men were granted the right to vote. They could learn and own property and even hold political office and die simply for being free. She'd read the stories in the papers, heard the whisperings of raids in nearby Green County and the horrible beating that Mr. James Corley had undergone in front of his wife and daughter. Sixty-five assailants, hooded men, some of whom were the aristocrats of the town, had brutally beaten him to within an inch of his life. He would be forever scarred physically and in ways that went much deeper. The Klan had chosen James Corley because he was a black legislator from Georgia. She felt the bile rise in her throat. And now the Klan was here in Wilkes County, 
on her father's plantation. As she knelt on the wooden floor of the church, she wondered who had delivered the warning. Why had she stayed so late at the schoolhouse? She knew it wasn't wise to be out alone after dusk, but she loved the stillness after the adults and children headed to their cabins. Alone in that room, she could prepare lessons for the next day, and if she was lucky, get another glimpse of Leroy. There. She admitted it even as she heard a horse whinny than the tramping of dozens of hooves. Light from burning torches glowed and blurred in the window as the angry mob rushed past the church toward the freedmen's cabins. Emily knew the clanners were enraged at the thought of the black men on the plantation exercising their new rights to vote or hold a legislative office. These changes were making